Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we've got a fellow American prospect guy, our editor-at-large, Harold Meyerson. Um, he's, he's coming on to talk about his extensive history and experience in the labor movement and um, in the socialist movement in, the, in this country. Yeah, as well as uh, some good reporting and writing he's done recently on the contemporary labor movements, labor organizing uh, updates, and some analysis of uh, what's going on today and how his vast experience can help us better understand what's going on today. Yeah, I really appreciate, you know, he talked about how uh, when he was coming up, you know, as a young, young pup, uh, socialist labor organizer, he talked to a lot of the old guard, like the, the remaining old left guys from the 1930s, and they taught him a lot of things. And, you know, now we're sort of repeating the tradition. He's, he's telling us all about how it was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and uh, some, some very humorous names for some of these union precedents. <laughs> You'll, you'll have to keep Absolutely. your keep your ears uh, to the ground for those because you don't want to miss Wimpy, <laughs> as he's called. That's right. That's right. You should, you should hear Wimpy's full name. It's pretty great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And some interesting discussions about the Biden administration and the general counsel for the NLRB and, and how, um, you know, power is actually finally, after decades and decades of the NLRB, you know, being... Uh, less than helpful to the labor movement. Finally, some, some good is being done to, to slightly, ever so slightly, um, make it easier for, uh, union organizers and for the labor movement to, to win their battles. Uh, so there's some important stuff there on, on the state of play there. Some hope, but also why, uh, for labor and the left to win going forward, a lot more has to be done. Um, with regard to labor law and hopefully eventually with the PRO Act being passed or something like that, because there's this dialectic between, um, you know, what, what the law does and allows and, you know, those on the ground and non-electoral, uh, you know, fights for, for labor power. Yep. But before we do that, we got to do our standard disclaimer that this podcast is sponsored by the American Prospect magazine. Uh, if you subscribe at the $10 a month tier, you'll get access to our bonus episodes, a free digital subscription to the magazine, and a discount print subscription. Um, $5 a month, you'll get just the bonus episodes. But we appreciate all the support. Rate and review. Send it to your grandma. Um, That's right. Every, everybody, everybody should... Uh, long road trips, play it on long road trips, just, uh, you know, binge it's, 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 uh, you know, left anchor could be a fun binge on a road trip. Yeah. But without further ado, let's, uh, get into our interview with Harold right now. Uh, so Harold, welcome to the program. Um, we've, uh, you know, we've, we've been wanting to have you on for a long time and, you know, finally made room for it. Uh, but I wanted to kick the conversation off by talking a little bit about the National Labor Relations Board and um, Jennifer Abruzzo. I may be mispronouncing that, um, but you have a, uh, a few months ago, you had a great piece in the prospect about a profile of her, basically, that gives some of the you know legal uh, context to the way that the NLRB operates. And so can you give us like a breakdown of, you know, why she is such a, 
a, a, a break from the previous, you know, regimes at the, the NLRB? And if there's been any development since you published that piece? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, I'm delighted to be uh, on the podcast and uh, to be with you guys. Uh, secondly, Abruzzo is really sort of the tip of the spear, the spear being Joe Biden's really groundbreaking pro-union appointees and policies uh, in terms of the policies of the U.S. trade rep, Catherine Tai, in terms of things that the Department of Labor is doing, which on Labor Day weekend included posting almost a how-to guide uh, if you wanted to join or form a union, uh, which God knows has not been uh, the constant refrain of labor departments past, and the NLRB, in which Biden, uh, as any president can, appoints three out of the five members, all of whom are pro-labor Democrats, and appoints the general counsel. Now, general counsel sounds like a subservient position to the board, which in some ways it is, and in some ways it's really not, uh, particularly if there's an activist general counsel like Jennifer Abruzzo. Uh, in, in this case, what a general counsel does is give directives to the 500 or so employee uh, attorneys who are employees working under her in the nearly 50 regions of uh, the NLRB. And it's those regions that adjudicate uh, labor disputes, that serve as the uh, vote certifier and vote counter when workers uh, have an election to see if they're going to be uh, part of a union. Uh, and what are the criteria that constitute unfair labor practices and such? Now, in most uh, administrations past. There, there are obviously really significant differences between Democratic-controlled NLRBs and Republican-controlled NLRBs. In fact, the status of graduate students in private universities, since the NLRB has jurisdiction only over private sector workers, has gone back and forth depending on which party controls the, uh, the board. Uh, but in general, uh, the General Counsel has not really been uh, the public face of the NLRB because the criteria set by the General Counsel have pretty much stuck uh, to what they've been for the last 50 or 60 years. Where Jennifer Abruzzo parts company is she kind of says, well, <laughs> the last 50 years have been characterized by the uh, declining power of the National Labor Relations Act due to court rulings and such. Um, but let's go back 70 years. Um, and one of the first things she did when she became general counsel was uh, say to her various 500 attorneys, well, let's look at something that the Truman Labor Board did, uh, which Jennifer Abruzzo might have been one of you know six people in the United States to actually know about. Uh, and that was if a, a, a company disputed what is like a card check uh, and didn't have a good reason for it, um, the uh, board could could compel them to go straight into negotiations. Uh, she has taken really a 
very proactive view of, uh, in a way, to the extent that she can, restoring the National Labor Relations Act uh, to something close to its original potency. Now, obviously, I think the board will go along with her when, when managements dispute this. And in fact, uh, uh, in the case of the uh, Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, which went union, uh, the company Amazon contested uh, some conditions uh, that prevailed during that vote because they wanted to decertify the union. One of those things was a, a change in uh, one of the key chain, one of the key components of uh, labor law, uh, as it's been interpreted over recent decades. Um, if a uh, employer illegally fires a, a union, uh, a union organizer or a union activist during an uh, an organizing campaign. Uh, the penalty has been utterly negligible. Uh, th this wends its way slowly through the NLRB bureaucracy. The employee may finally be restored to work, and the employer is compelled to post a notice uh, at the work site saying, well, we may have violated the uh, NLRA, and we've restored that employee. And the law also requires uh, giving that employee his or her back pay unless during the period in maybe months or years uh, that he or she has been fired uh, unless that employee has actually uh, gotten wages somewhere else, in which case that's subtracted from the amount that the <laughs> employer is obliged to pay uh, that worker. Well, uh, Jennifer Bruta said, look, uh, it really kind of denies workers rights in real time while an organizing drive is going on if that employee is fired. So we're going to say that employee has to be reinstated right away. Uh, and she's also said, um, you know, the employee needs to be made whole, which is to say not only compensated for back pay, but, uh, you know, for any other like loans that employee had to take out or whatever. And in, in, in other words, getting back to what was the not just the letter at that time, but the spirit of the original National Labor Relations Act, which was passed in 1935 uh, to help workers unionize, uh, you know, which is something that employers and their friends on the courts have eroded over the past, what is that, uh, almost, uh, almost 90 years. Um, so, uh, you know, Amazon protested, their protest was thrown out. Uh, and it, it's it's clear that uh, the NLRB is is also uh, you know at least at the regional level, and this is inspired again by Jennifer Abruzzo, uh declaring that Amazon's uh, Amazon Starbucks that Starbucks practice of giving wage increases to all of its employees except those in the facilities that have unionized or where they are. Uh, you know, have petitioned for unionization. Uh, about 230 so far, Starbucks out of the 9,000 have gone union with another 100 or so having petitioned for unionization. Uh, but that drive has slowed as the news of uh, Starbucks saying, well, you won't get wage increases like the non-union workers. Uh, but now uh, a regional uh, board, uh, a regional attorney, general counsel, of a region of the uh, NLRB has said uh, that's an unfair labor practice. So you're beginning to see 
uh, Abruzzo's rulings trickling down and really kind of redefining in a pro-worker way uh, what constitutes an unfair labor practice, what management cannot do, that sort of thing. Incredible. If I may, just very briefly, for those who are uh, less familiar, not just with the NLRB, but with how administrative law even works, right? Like people might be thinking, wait a minute, why are lawyers in a board? Why are they adjudicating things? And how are, they? can you maybe familiarize people with the importance of those? Sure. Uh, if, if either workers or management have an issue, uh, they uh, present it to the council, the, the, the uh, employee of, uh, of, of, uh, of uh, the general counsel, and that council can uh, itself uh, move it to a administrative judge uh, to rule on, uh, or you know uh, the union or management can go directly to that administrative procedure, and that judge rules. That that can then be appealed to the actual uh, National Labor Relations Board, the five-member board in D.C., and whatever they rule uh, can then be taken to federal court. And that is sort of the end of the chain and expresses the limits of what even so dedicated an advocate as Jennifer Abruzzo can do, because as we know, the courts are at this point controlled by uh, conservatives, and even many of the Democratic appointees to the federal bench uh, have not been notably pro-labor. So, uh, you know, so this is uh, uh, this is the problem, and this is why labor law itself uh, needs to be bolstered, uh, and that is what's behind the so-called PRO Act which passed the House, but obviously couldn't pass the Senate. I want to get um, more into that in detail, but there, there's one point I think worth emphasizing, Harold, that that Biden really is a huge outlier, especially maybe relative to what I would have expected from him, uh, from being kind of the on the corporate wing of the party, the bankruptcy reform guy. Um, you know, Obama's... I mean, I don't know the, the whole history of it, but but he, I think, could fairly be characterized as very, very mildly pro-union. Uh, you know, he he um, pr- made a promise he was going to try to get card check passed, which would make it much easier to form a union, really just gave up on that almost immediately. Hillary Clinton was going to appoint Howard Schultz as the secretary of labor, the guy who's running the Starbucks union busting campaign. And here you have Biden. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, Harold. I would say maybe the most pro-union administration since Harry Truman, at least on the executive level. Could anyone beat him? I would say more. I would say more. Uh, You know, Roosevelt and Truman, who represent, as you note, the height of pro-union Democrats until Biden comes along in the White House, uh, they didn't actually do what Biden did in the case of the Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, which is kind of issue a statement more or less saying, don't be swayed by management. And they didn't necessarily welcome into the White House uh, right away, the equivalence of uh, Chris Smalls and some of the uh, Starbucks baristas who have gone union. Well, Biden is nothing if not a party guy. And, you know, the Democratic Party at its base 
has become much more pro-union. In the annual polling uh, done by Gallup of union approval ratings among Democrats, it's into the 80s, uh, you know, the 80 percent. Um, and 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 Biden is a pretty good follower of where the mainstream <laughs> of the party is, uh, you know, and and it's reflected in a number of ways. It's reflected in trade policy. I mean, when you talk about the limits of what uh, his Democratic predecessors, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, did on trade, Biden is the first guy who's really you know saying, look. Offshoring has been a disaster. Now, there too, he is following what is a changed perception uh, among, uh, you know, formerly mainstream, you know, mainstream Democrats. You know, I mean, the EPI, the Economic Policy Institute, may have been saying this uh, 30 years ago, but it, you know, only only in the last decade have uh, mainstream economists like David Otur at uh, MIT noted there was something called the China shock you know, in, in terms of loss of jobs uh, in industrial America, something that uh, Thea Lee and Rob Scott at the Economic Policy Institute, uh, you know, began noticing about a month after we uh, we passed uh, permanent normal trade relations with China. Uh, so this And that was, to be clear, the, so that happened in Clinton, you had NAFTA, you had a bunch of, a couple of other treaties, and then the China thing that was in 2000 if yes. I'm, and then after the next four years, we lost like a quarter of the manufacturing jobs in the country, something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it was it was it just decimated. Well, actually, decimated means you lose a tenth. We lost way more than a tenth of manufacturing jobs, which the unions, you know, predicted. Uh, and, uh, you know, they had considerable support among House Democrats. They just didn't have the support among Senate Democrats who were more um, capable, if that's the word, of of getting uh, major financial donations from Wall Street, uh, which was, you know, the biggest pusher of uh, this kind of trade policy. So so Biden marks, uh, you know, a, a, an end of that. But look, Democrats have tried to make labor law reform uh, possible, create a more friendly labor law as far back as Lyndon Johnson's presidency and a guy named Ken Young, who was at that point in the 60s, uh, the deputy uh, chief lobbyist for the AFL-CIO, he told me this in the 90s, um, that, that the, the AFL-CIO had 87 must-pass bills in the Great Society Congress of 1965, which passed Medicare, the Voting Rights Act, and so on. They passed, they got 86 of them. They could not get labor law reform or at that point, which consisted of getting rid of right to work uh, states, uh, they could not get it through the Senate. They're, at that point, Southern Democrats killed it. In fact, uh, Tom Donahue, who was uh, briefly president of the AFL-CIO, said if he could make one change to the American governmental structure, it would be to eliminate Arkansas as a state because Arkansas's <laughs> senators, when Democrat, had always voted against and, and, and made it impossible to break the filibuster uh, in the Senate because it came up again. It comes up whenever Democrats have the White House and Congress. So it came up uh, at the end of the Carter administration, didn't pass, came up early in Clinton, didn't pass, came up early in Obama, didn't pass. Now, again, it's come up and it passed the House, as it did in all those instances 
but not the Senate because uh, uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema are against eliminating the filibuster. Uh, so th th this has been a, a constant theme. But yes, Biden clearly is the most, I would say, pro-union uh, senator ever. And I just wrote uh, a President. My weekly on tap column uh, for the prospect today, noting that he and Gavin Newsom had an interesting little contest over the weekend as to who was more pro-labor. Newsom signed this amazing groundbreaking bill in California to create sectoral bargaining for fast food workers, raising their wage almost immediately to $22 an hour, creating a commission on which actual fast food workers and actual management representatives will sit to regulate standards of work. Um, but Newsom is not really enamored of another bill sitting on his desk that the legislature just passed to more or less create mail balloting for farm workers. Uh, it, it's it's a co more complicated issue than it may seem. But Biden came out on Sunday saying he was for that bill. I mean, presidents don't usually do that uh, about bills sitting on Democratic governor's desk. It's like they were duking it out as to who was really Labor's BFF, you know. Uh, and, you know, I mean, this is great. When was the last time, you know, in this case with Newsom and Biden, possible Democratic uh, primary opponents. Uh, Labor one-upsmanship, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, let's have more of it. That's the end of the preview, folks. If you want to hear the whole episode, you can go to patreon.com slash left anchor. Thanks for listening.